0: Well, good morning, church family. Morning on this first Sunday uh, in Advent, and I want to let you know before I start that we had a great healing prayer service last Sunday night as we finished our James series. We had about 60 people come, about another uh, 50 that participated on the live stream, and we had about 50 people come forward for prayer and anointing with our pastors and elders, and it was just a sweet and special time, and I'm excited to do that again in a couple of months, and so thanks for praying for that and supporting that. You know, firsts are important to remember. We keep a record of a baby's first steps. We remember their first words. We take pictures of their first day of school. We remember our first job, our first date, our first car, our first paycheck, our first concert, our first kiss. In fact, my first date, my first concert, my first kiss were all on the same day. So you can imagine that was a memorable day for me. Firsts are important to remember. Well, today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent, and the word Advent comes from a Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. For centuries, followers of Jesus around the world have prepared their hearts to celebrate the arrival of Jesus at Christmas by observing the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas. You see, we are surrounded by what I sometimes call cultural Christmas. And cultural Christmas is mostly about consumerism, buying things and selling things. According to the National Retail Federation, last year, Americans collectively spent more than $70 billion on Christmas last year. The average American spent $1,000 on Christmas last year. The high holy days of cultural Christmas are Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And because cultural Christmas is mostly driven by consumerism, it's no wonder that our culture tries to rush us to Christmas. Because the sooner we start thinking about Christmas, the more money we'll spend between then and when Christmas comes. This is why we see Christmas displays in stores before the Halloween displays are even down. It's why we're flooded with Christmas movies on our Netflix queue before we've eaten our Thanksgiving turkey yet. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of things I like about cultural Christmas. But for me, those things really have very little to do with what Christmas is really all about. You see, for followers of Jesus, Christmas is first and foremost about worship. It's a season to worship the God who kept all of his promises by sending his Son into the world to die for our sins. Christmas is a holy day in the Christian church, second only to Easter in its significance. But cultural Christmas easily encroaches and overshadows that reality. And this is where Advent can help us. Advent puts the brakes on our culture's pressure to rush to Christmas. Advent invites us into the spiritual practice of waiting with hope and anticipation. It helps us slow down. And if, if we let it, Advent can counter the consumerism of cultural Christmas. And even during the busyness of Christmas can draw us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. So welcome to Advent. The season where we learn what it's like to wait in hopeful anticipation for God to keep his promises. Now, I also told you last Sunday that I believe here at Glen Kirk, this year in Advent, God is taking us into a season of invitation. I believe that God wants to use each and every one of us who are here as his ambassadors to invite others to join in the journey of following Jesus. Now, when I started at my very first church as a pastor 30 years ago, the average worship attendance at that church was 200 people. And when I left that church 17 years later, the average attendance was about 1,200 people with about a third of those people previously unchurched. And sometimes people ask me what I did to help that church grow, which of course makes the assumption that it had something to do with something I did. So they they ask, you know, did you hire a church growth consultant or did you start a new evangelism program or, or did you spend a lot of money on direct mail advertising? But if I'm honest, the single most significant factor in that church's growth had very little to do with me. You see, most of those 200 people that we started with simply decided that they were going to live lives of invitation to the people around them. All I did as their pastor was ask them to do that. And over time, most of them did. And I'm trusting that God is leading us into a season of invitation here at Glenkirk as well. During the season of Advent and on into the season of Christmas. This year we're calling our Advent series Promises Kept. And over the four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas and then the two Sundays after Christmas Day, we're going to look at six different promises that God made and kept about sending Jesus into the world. Now, the Bible is filled with all kinds of promises. By by one person's count, there are more than 7,000 promises in the Bible. And sometimes we get confused about how to actually live into those promises, about how they work and function in our lives. And so over the next six weeks, by looking at these six promises, we'll be able to better posture our lives towards all of God's promises in a way that will deepen our relationship with God. So today, on this first Sunday in the season of Advent, we're going to look at the very first promise that God made about sending Jesus into the world. And it shouldn't surprise us that the very first promise about Jesus is found in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means beginnings, and and Genesis is all about beginnings, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the world, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of marriage and family, the beginning of Israel, and the beginning of God's promises to send his son to our world. The first two chapters of Genesis are about creation and blessing. God speaks the world into existence and then creates a world that he declares to be good. And then God makes the first man and the first woman. And, and Genesis tells us that God made Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, in his image and likeness, which sets them apart from the rest of creation. and makes them unique and makes us as their descendants unique as well. The image of God gives every person Without exception, inherent dignity and value. God blesses the first man and the first woman in Genesis 1, commanding them to rule over the earth and to subdue it. As image bearers of the Creator, people are God's representatives in creation. And God empowers the human race to discover the hidden mysteries that God has placed into the world that He made. The human race would go on to create tools and discover fire. They would invent writing and construct buildings. Over time, humans would create whole cultures, build libraries, organize societies, create institutions of law and science, medicine, music, art, and education, and all of these achievements flow from God's original blessing on the first man and first woman as he made them in his image and likeness and commanded them to rule over his creation. When God finished his work of creation, Genesis 1.31 says that God looked at all that he had made and it was very good. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in his message translation, it was so good, so very good. And if that's where the story ended, the Bible would be very short. There'd be no need for any promises about sending his son into the world. There wouldn't be a need for Christmas or for Good Friday or Easter for that matter. But in the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 3, we find rebellion and judgment. Of all the choices the first man and woman could have made, only one of those choices was a bad one. Could you imagine that? Only one bad choice. Everything else is good. That was the choice to eat the fruit of the one tree that God had withheld from them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God warned that eating of the fruit of this tree would have disastrous effects. That it would result in death. Not just physical death becoming mortal, but spiritual death. Separation from God. But then in God's good creation, a serpent suddenly appears. And the New Testament identifies this serpent as a manifestation of Satan himself, an angel who had rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. And as this serpent slithers up to our first parents, it deceives the woman and entices the man. And giving in to the serpent's suggestion, the first man and the first woman do the one thing, the only thing that was forbidden, and they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened and they experience evil. But their story is also our story. It's replicated in each one of our lives. The Bible says in the New Testament in Romans 5.12 that sin entered our world through one man and death came through sin and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.22 puts it this way, in Adam, the first man, the entire human race died. As our representatives, our first parents, made a fatal choice that became our choice as well. And in this act of rebellion, they unleashed the power of sin and death and evil in God's good creation. The the human race fell from a place of honor and plunged into a place of dishonor. Our relationship with God was severed. Our relationships with each other was damaged. And our relationship to the rest of creation was distorted. And the human race became enslaved to evil, owned by the serpent who had deceived them. And so in Genesis 3, God responds with judgment. Judgment first on the serpent, then on the woman, and finally on the man. Christians sometimes call this the curse. And this judgment results in a power struggle between men and women. Increased pain in childbirth for women. A a relationship with the earth that's frustrating and, and difficult. But worst of all, it results in death. Both physical and spiritual death become a reality for every human being. It is not an overstatement to say that Genesis 3 is the worst moment in human history. Every awful, painful, and evil thing that has ever happened in the world traces back to the events of Genesis 3. It was a cataclysmic event that would impact all of creation, the entire human race, each one of us, But it was in that darkness of human rebellion and divine judgment that the light of God's very first promise begins to dawn. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the only verse I'm going to look at today, but we'll look at it in depth. This is God's words to the serpent in the judgment on the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the very first of God's promises in the Bible. And what's so surprising is this promise comes as part of a declaration of judgment on the serpent, on Satan. God promises to put enmity, the Hebrew word here is hostility, to make enemies between the serpent and the woman. How is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing because the first man and first woman were now owned by the serpent. They'd fallen into the serpent's trap that not only severed their relationship with God, but transferred the ownership of their lives from God to evil. The title deed of the entire human race now belonged to the serpent. God's promise to create hostility between the serpent and the woman was God reclaiming the human race as his own through this promise. God acts to protect the woman and the human race. She represents from being so fully engulfed by evil that she and all of her descendants would be beyond redemption. Redemption. Because of God's promise here, humanity still belongs to God. The, the image and likeness of God in human beings remains. Even though it's been distorted and damaged by sin, it's still there. People can be saved and redeemed, which is something that is not true of the serpent. Louis Burkhoff, a theologian, says that the fall brought us in league with Satan, but God breaks that newly formed alliance here by turning our friendship with Satan into enmity and reestablishing us in friendship with God. This enmity was a gift of grace. And this hostility wasn't just for the serpent and the woman, but it would extend all of her descendants as well. And and some people think that this verse divides um, humanity into two groups. Bad people, descendants of the serpent, and good people, descendants of Eve. And of course, when people do that, we, we tend to define bad people as people that we don't like personally. In fact, some people think that The woman's sin in the garden was actual physical intimacy with the serpent, with the evil one. According to this teaching, this resulted in Eve getting pregnant and giving birth to her first son, Cain, who murdered his brother Abel. And according to this teaching, the descendants of Cain created an evil race of people. This is sometimes called the serpent seed doctrine. And it's a very bizarre doctrine. The historic Christian church has never endorsed it. If you, if you trace it back in history, it goes back to the, the, a group, a non-Christian group called the Gnostics in the third and fourth century. And I hesitate to even mention it, except that I mention it today because the serpent seed doctrine is widely taught in white supremacy groups today. Groups that claim that descendants of Eve and Adam were white people and descendants of people of color came through descendants of the serpent. It's a false teaching contradicted by the Bible. See, this verse is not dividing humanity into two different groups. The entire human race is represented by the descendants of Eve. That's why in verse 20 Of Genesis 3, Eve is called the mother of all humanity. The descendants of the serpent are not little devils spawned by by Satan. It's just a way of describing the powers of darkness in our world. Principalities and powers that are in league with Satan to destroy human life. To sow hatred and create despair. You see, Genesis is telling us that from this moment forward, the forces of unseen evil in our world and the entire human race would be at odds. And that this hostility is a gift from God. This was the first act of grace that we are not consumed by evil. It was an act of grace. This is the beginning of God's covenant of grace that he offers the human race to come into by faith. See, by definition grace is an undeserved gift that is freely given. The the price of that gift is paid by the giver of the gift. And so grace can't be earned or bought or merited or bartered for or traded. I love the way Philip Yancey defines grace in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He says, God's grace means that no amount of sinning can cause God to love you less and no amount of trying to be good can cause God to love you more. God already loves you by grace. He has paid the price of that gift. And this hostility between evil and the human race Is a gift of grace because it means that people are redeemable. They can be saved. No one is so far that God's grace can't reach them. And people are certainly capable of doing horrible, evil things. We we read about it and hear about it every week. But no one gives themselves so fully to evil that they are beyond the ability of God's grace to reach them. And to save them. The promise of grace begins here. Now, the second half of verse 15 promises an epic struggle between the evil forces at work in our world and a single future descendant of the woman who would fight this battle. This future descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, but not before the serpent strikes at the heel. Of this descendant of the woman. Though the woman and her husband opened the door to evil, sin, and death. To invade God's good creation. It's a descendant of this same woman who will close that door one day. And destroy evil with finality. But it will be an epic struggle. Because like a poisonous snake, the forces of evil in our world will strike at the heel of this descendant of the woman to try to destroy him. And this is the very first promise about Jesus coming into the world. Jesus is the future descendant of this woman. He would come into the world at Christmas. He would battle against evil his entire life on this earth. He would be struck down by the power of evil when he was crucified. And yet by dying on the cross, Jesus would vanquish the power of evil and rise from the dead. See, during Jesus' life, the powers of evil tried to destroy him. It was the powers of evil that inspired Herod to try to kill Jesus when he was born as a baby. It was the the powers of darkness that prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. It was evil forces at work through dishonest politicians in a corrupt justice system that condemned Jesus to die, even though he was innocent of any wrongdoing. And after he died on the cross, the forces of evil rejoiced, thinking that they had won. But through that very death, Jesus dealt the crushing blow to evil itself. By dying for the sins of humanity. By allowing himself to be struck in the heel. By the powers of the serpent. He crushed the head of the serpent. By destroying evil itself. See in Genesis 3.15 we find the first promise. God will defeat evil through Christ's coming. That is the first promise. In fact, some people call verse 15 the first gospel because it's the first of many promises that God makes throughout the Bible about sending his son into the world. This is the first faint glimmer of Christmas as this woman and future generations after her would wait in Advent anticipation for the fulfillment of God's promises. So on this first Sunday of Advent, We're reminded of God's promise to send his son into the world starts at the very beginning. At the worst moment in human history. When the human race has fallen from the heights of innocence into the depths of evil. And God pronounces judgment and death enters the human situation. In the midst of all of that chaos and mess. God speaks a word of promise. The American 18th century evangelist George Whitfield said that this promise seems dark and obscure to us because we have all the other promises of God to look at. But for Adam and Eve, for our first parents, this promise was all they had. And yet Whitfield says that we may assure ourselves they built upon this promise their hopes of salvation. And by that faith, they were saved. See, this is often how God's promises work in our lives. John Calvin in his institutes calls this promise in Genesis 3 a feeble spark. I love that image a feeble spark, a barely lit ember that looks like it might go out. It's so fragile. Fragile compared to the magnitude of sin and evil and death. But over time, God adds more promises to this feeble spark. More kindling to the ember. And the light grows stronger and burns brighter. Until finally, God sends his son the light of the world. The sun of righteousness itself. Who would bring the light of God's promise. To the entire world. To the entire earth. This is how God's promises work. Is there a promise from God in your life tonight? Or today? That seems little more than a feeble spark. A fragile. Barely burning ember. It seems like it's might go out amid the overwhelming circumstances that you face in your life. Advent reminds us that even a feeble spark of a promise, if that promise has come from God, will grow in time. And over time, it will burn brighter and it will burn stronger as we learn to wait in Advent anticipation. Advent reminds us that God is with us in the in-between times. In between receiving the promises of God. And the fulfillment of the promises of God. God is with us. And he is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this first promise about sending your son into the world. Thank you for your act of grace from the very beginning of reclaiming us back to you that we might be redeemable and not beyond hope. Thank you that you have kept your promises that our forefathers had only this promise to hold on to. And we have all the promises that came after. Father, we thank you. You are a faithful God. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.